Hey, thanks for downloading this episode of Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We're going to talk about the temptation of Jesus, and then Pastor Graf comes on to talk about self-justification, the dangers thereof, and how really even the most secular people believe in life after death and judgment. It's a fantastic, fantastically interesting conversation. Here you go, Cross Defense. Welcome to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We, every week, meet here around the radio, you and me, to talk about the Bible, the Scriptures, theology, to fight against, you know, the devil, who's always, he's always tempting us in various different ways to doubt God's Word, despise God's Word, forget about God's Word, to, to miss the joy of God's Word, and we're, we're going to dig into that today, especially in the opening. We're going we're gonna to talk about the temptation of, of Jesus in the wilderness by the devil. That's how we're going to start. And then uh, Pastor Graff, Pastor Warren Graff from Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, is going to come on. And I don't know, he's always got something wacky, goofy, fun, unexpected. Let's say unexpected. So he's going to come on after the break and uh, and join us for some more conversation. But first, let's talk about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Now, I want to I want to practice something with you. I, and I'm going to I'm practicing this myself. And so I'm not. I'm no expert in this. Uh, we're gonna. We're we're in this together. But I want to practice reading the scriptures uh, with imagination. Now, what do I mean by that? W- one of the things that I think is tough for us is that the the stuff that we're used to reading, if we're readers, the books that we pick up, they tell us exactly uh, about a thing, how we're supposed to feel about uh, whatever it is that we're reading. So, so modern books, modern novels, uh, modern uh, works of literature, uh, t- they tell us uh, if, it, if a thing is beautiful, they tell us that it's beautiful. If a thing is mysterious, they tell us that it's mysterious. They, just, they bring us into the heads of the characters, and they, and they paint the picture there for us, so you don't have to do any work. Ancient writing, and especially the Bible, is different in this way, is that it requires a bit of work in our imaginations to get there. So we want to we want to practice reading the scriptures with imagination to realize that that for example as we read the story of Jesus going into the wilderness or the story of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus that these men Jesus John and all the people the disciples are just as real as you are and I am they're just as much they're just as human and they've got as just much flesh and blood as we do that the that the the colors back in the time of Jesus were just as vibrant as the colors that we see, that the water that they used to baptize is just as wet and sounded the same. In other words, the smells and the sights and the sounds and the, and the feel of everything is, is real. But we, for whatever reason, abstracted. I think, you know, I, I, I grew up going to Sunday school, and there's this felt board uh, Sunday school class sort of thing where you have the board there, and, and if you have the baptism of Jesus, you have like a... a, a a green felt board, and then you have a felt Jordan River, and then a little felt John the Baptist in in a in a in a yellow robe with a big yellow beard, and then you have Jesus in a white robe with a brown beard. This everything's clean, and there's a handful of people. Well, this is, of course, not how it was. So we wanna we wanna stretch ourselves a little bit to try to to try to get there, to try to imagine it, 
to try to to try to to let the word of God, especially the the, the accounts of the scriptures, come in through our ear and in and into our imagination, so that we can see it and we can smell it. So we want to try this a little bit with the temptation of Jesus. So it's right after the baptism. I'm in Mark chapter. Wait a minute. I'm in Matthew chapter 4, uh, if you want to follow along, if you've got a Bible hanging around. And, and we want to remember that Matthew, I'm about to make a, a very a genius insight, if you're, if you're ready for this. Matthew chapter 4 is right after Matthew chapter 3. But that's important because the temptation of Jesus is right after the baptism of Jesus. So Jesus, he, he is 30 years old. He has, he's not yet in the office of Messiah. That's why he goes down to John, who's a prophet. And he goes down to John, and John baptizes him. And when Jesus is baptized, he's put into the office of Messiah. It's an important thing to note. Jesus was, he is just, he, he is God and man in the flesh, but he didn't have the work of being Messiah. He didn't have the office of being the Savior until his baptism. I mean, it was always going to be him. It's not like it's something was could be a surprise there, but it's the it's the baptism of Jesus that puts him officially in the office of the anointed one. That's what a Messiah means in Hebrew, or Christos means in Greek. It means the anointed one. And Jesus was anointed in his baptism. He was christened in his baptism. It's, it's at his baptism that Jesus becomes Jesus the Christ. He enters into that office. And the heavens break open, and the dove descends on Jesus. He bears the Holy Spirit above all his fellows, the oil of gladness. And, and God the Father speaks of Jesus. This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Now, we want to make sure we keep that in our mind, because when the devil comes to tempt Jesus, he's going to say, Did God, if, God, if God is really your, if you really are the Son of God, if, if God is really your Father. So he's going to tempt, the, part of the temptation is going to be to doubt the word that God spoke in his baptism. But now let me just ask you to do this, to try this little mental experiment. So here's Jesus. He's 30 years old. He goes down from the Galilee up north where he had grown up, and he comes down south, down to the Jordan River, down kind of on the plains of Jericho, then out on the other side on the Jordan River before it spills down into the Dead Sea. And there John the Baptist, his cousin, is preaching repentance, and he's baptizing the people. He's preparing the way for the Lord. And there's huge, massive crowds that have come down from Jerusalem to see, to see John, to hear him preach, to figure out what he's doing, and to be baptized by him, to be set apart for the coming Messiah. And John was there preaching, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then finally, John says, here's Jesus, here's, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he baptizes Jesus. His disciples even see that this is the one. John sees the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus and, and anointing him to be the Messiah. And now, so I just want you to stop there and think to yourself, what do I think would come next? And what should be on the next page? In fact, I try, I'm not that good at this, but I, I think it's a good try to, whenever I remember to do it, I'm always glad that I do it. Before I turn the page of the Bible, I try to ask, well, what would I say? If I was writing this book, what would, what would I put next? What would happen after this? Now, the, the nice thing about doing this, thinking to yourself, what would I say, is that you're always wrong. At least I am. I mean, I'm always wrong. You never can predict what the Lord is going to do next. And I think that's true here. I mean, here's the Son of God down in our flesh. Now he's set apart for the office and work of Messiah. And then we say, well, what's going to happen next? What's going to, here he is entering into his office. What's, what's going to be, what's going to be the very next page? You would think, well, maybe the people would sing and welcome him. Or maybe 
uh, that, that John would, would set him apart and he'd, inter, he'd, he'd start teaching. Or maybe the crowds would gather around him. Or maybe that crowd all around John would start following and it would go, John and Jesus would go first and they would march up to Jerusalem and, and take over Jerusalem. Or maybe Jesus would just have a, build a sort of a teaching center there and have a seminary down there. Elijah had a seminary, seminary pretty close to there. And he, maybe Jesus would set up a seminary and he'd start teaching or something like that. And, in other words, I would guess any of those things. But the last thing that I would guess would happen is this, that the Holy Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness by himself to fast, no eating or drinking, for 40 days. It's incredible. I mean, what? why would that be the first work that Jesus would do? Why? It seems like the first work that the Messiah would do would be one of a, a preaching or not, but the, fair, the very first thing is that he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Can you imagine you call a pastor, and the pastor comes, and you're getting, he moves into his office, everything down, you, you, he gets ordained, or he gets installed in the church, and then the very first thing that he does is he goes for 40 days into the wilderness. I mean, it's just, it's completely a, a surprise. And yet, the, this is how uh, the Holy Spirit arranged the ministry of Jesus, to begin with his fight against the devil in the, in the wilderness. Now, the more we meditate on it, I suppose the more it starts to make sense to us because the very first thing that we read in the Bible is this fight with Adam and Eve against the devil in the garden where everything was lost. But now Jesus is there in the wilderness so that everything can be restored. It's also to start looking at the parallels between the temptation of the garden in the Garden of Eden and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. The, 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 the parallels and the contrasts start to, uh, start to fire up in our imagination as well. For example, remember how it was with Adam and Eve in the garden? The devil came to Eve and said, did God really say you can't eat any of this fruit? And Eve says, no, we can eat of every tree of the garden except for this one right in the middle. But here's Jesus who can't eat any of the fruit. Or any of the, I mean, he can't eat any food at all. So the Lord, whereas the Lord had given Adam and Eve all of this provision so that they were, there was no way that Adam and Eve were hungry when they ate the fruit. They weren't eating it because they were hungry. But here Jesus is hungry. And the text will tell us that after 40 days of not eating and drinking, he was hungry. Now, this is occasion for just a pause again as we're work, working our way through the text. And, and, and try to imagine how it would be to be 40 days hungry. I used to know a guy who had done a couple of 40-day fasts. It was kind of an amazing thing as he would tell us about it, but but he wouldn't it was a just it was a food fast, it was a hard food fast and he would have to towards the end of it, in fact about halfway through, he would have to start drinking various kind of juices so that his body would would have the right nutrients. And he says about two or three weeks into a 40-day fast, his breath would be so ridiculously putrid that he basically had to chew mints the whole time. So he was getting nutrition that way as well. In other words, it's, it's possible if you modify the idea to make it this long without food, but Jesus is making it with nothing. I mean, he's got nothing. He's starving. His body is eating itself. The pain of it all, the, the weakness of it all, the, the, the sorrow. So you imagine Jesus there for 40 days and 40 nights, nothing to eat, and, his, and this profound hunger that's there. It's hard for us to get our, our heads around that. And, and to think about that hunger is really something. And then the devil comes along and he says, hey, hey, I got an idea. 
This is the first temptation. The devil who said, well, food worked the first time. Might as well try it again. It worked with Adam and Eve. Let's, let's try it here with Jesus. And he says to Jesus, hey, if, uh, if you really are the son of God, why don't you turn this rock into bread? Now, now, let's just think about that temptation for a little bit. I mean, the devil is the devil's the greatest fool, but he also is the he's he's wily in his foolishness. And the and the temptation has to come at Jesus from a uh, from a number of different angles. I mean, first and perhaps the most obvious is that Jesus is hungry. He wants to eat his body and his stomach is crying out for some some nutrition, crying out for something to eat. And Jesus, it's no sin to eat bread. It's no sin to be hungry. That's not, that's not a sinful kind of act. And so the devil's not saying, hey, go, you know, grab a hold of some other guy's bank account or something. He's not telling him to, to steal or, or commit adultery. He's just telling him to eat a piece of bread. So what, you know, what could possibly be wrong with that? And so the devil, and this is how the devil does it, the devil wants to exploit the gap between our desires and our current situation. I mean, this is, this is just kind of temptation 101, is the devil knows what our sinful flesh wants, and, he, and then he comes along and he says, you see that thing that you want? Well, apparently God doesn't want you to have it, but why don't you just go ahead and grab it? So this is the first thing. Jesus is hungry, and the devil offers him bread. But there's something else that's in there. Because the devil says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. The devil is trying to put an if in front of God's declaration. God the Father had said to Jesus, you are my, uh, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You are my son, today I have begotten you, Psalm 2. The Lord had spoken that so clearly in the baptism of Jesus. But now the devil comes along and he tries to put a little if in front of it. You see that? If you are the son of God, to make a way for there to be doubt of the Lord's word. It's, it's the same thing the devil did in the beginning when, when the devil came to Eve and said, did God really say, and you will not surely die. And God knows. He, he tries to put a question mark where the Lord has an exclamation point. The devil tries to, to, to undercut the certainty that we have in the Lord's word. And it's the same for us. I mean, the, the, the devil comes along and tries to undercut the certainty of the things that the Lord has spoken to us, and especially the things in our baptism. I mean, the Lord has said in our baptism, you're rescued from sin and death and the devil. You, you belong to me. You're my, chi you're my child. You, you, my kingdom is your kingdom. My spirit is your spirit. All, all, uh, all the things that I have are yours. You will live forever. And the devil tries to come along and say, really? Are you sure? He tries, to put a little, he tries to put a little doubt in there. And then the third thing about this first temptation, not only does he, he's, is, is the devil exploiting the gap between what, what we want and, and what God has given and also trying to undercut the word of God, the devil apparently knows that Jesus can turn stones into bread. He says, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. So he's, he's tempting Jesus to act out of order according to the authority that he's given. The, the devil wants Jesus to... Uh, to act like the Son of God, but not to betray, but not to, um, not to serve the end of His office, which is the salvation of mankind, but to abuse the authority that He's given to serve Himself. So the devil comes along and tempts us to use the authority that we that we're given according to our office or whatever to use that to serve ourselves or our own ends rather than to serve our neighbor. Do you see this? This is really quite 
quite stunning in, in, in the way that the devil can tempt him. But Jesus, and this is so beautiful for us, Jesus stands there against the devil and he, and he just brings the, the preaching of Moses and he says, look, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every mouth that comes, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Most people live by bread alone. It's sola panis. They just live their life to fill their belly. That's what Paul says about the pagans. Their God is their belly. And Jesus says, that's not, that's not who I am. I belong to Jesus. Or I am Jesus. I belong to God. I'm God's son. And so I have more than that. I, I have God's word. I have God's promises. And I'll wait for him. When it's time for me to have bread, the Lord will provide me with bread. So the, so the Lord Jesus, who could have rebuffed the devil with his power and sent him away because he was the Son of God, in fact, quotes Moses to defend himself against the devil. Oh, man, Ian in the studio is telling me that Pastor Graff wants to come on the line, that we got to go to the break. I can't believe we just got barely, barely into the first temptation. I'm going to leave it there, dear friends. I'm going to leave it to you to go and read the rest of this text, Matthew chapter 4, and to read it with your imagination, to sink yourself. I mean, to let your, let your sandals be filled with the grit of the Judean wilderness as you walk along beside Jesus, uh, watching him resist the temptation of the devil. And remember that not only is Jesus there as our example, he's standing where Adam and Eve fell. He's there in our place. Well, God be praised for that. You're listening to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Let's go to the break. We'll do this break as quick as we can, and we'll be right back to talk with Pastor Warren Graff from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Stay tuned. I'm Pastor Ken Bomberger. Join me weekday mornings at 7.15 for Oratio, your time of scripture, meditation, and music on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Hi, this is Bart Day, President and CEO of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Reaching out in mercy and responding to human needs has been a key component of our life together in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And it's recognized service organizations like yours who work tirelessly to share the compassion of Christ to those who are suffering. LCEF appreciates your mission and understands the unique challenges ministries like yours face. We want to be a part of your great work of mercy and help you extend your reach. Visit us at lcef.org. Proverbs 27, 17 tells us, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. That's why weekday mornings at 8 a.m., two Missouri Synod pastors test their mettle against the Holy Scriptures, certain that not only will they come out better for it, but so will you. The sword of the Spirit is sharp to the touch, but you need practice wielding it. Check out Sharper Iron, 8 a.m., every weekday on Worldwide KFUO. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO.
there, now. Hey, all right. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolf. there, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Hey, we started something new this week, which is the verse of the week. Uh, every week we publish the Around the Word devotions, and they have a verse in there. And I started doing just a little devotional video Bible study thing. Uh, if you look at wolfmuller.co, W-O-L-F-M-U-E-L-L-E-R.co, slash V-O-W, verse of the week, vow, uh, you'll see a little video there and watch it with your family and uh, five minutes or something like that and, and enjoy the uh, scripture there. If, you're, if you need more theology, that's there for you. Pastor Graff is pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. How are things down in New Mexico, Pastor Graff? Hi, Brian. They're, they're fine. We're a little cold and rainy, but, but things are beautiful. So, so good, good, good. Great up there uh, in St. Louis. St. Louis, Colorado's fine. St. Louis, I'm sure, is miserable. I mean, great. Uh, so this yeah. is fantastic. Hey, um, did I was talking about the temptation of Jesus. Did you have that on Sunday, yesterday? Uh, were you looking yeah. at that text? How'd you, uh, yeah. any, any thoughts on this about how Jesus stands there in our place to stand where Adam and Eve fell? Yeah, isn't that wonderful? Um, I mean, it's the first, the first event in Scripture after he's baptized. And, of course, after he's baptized is when the prophet John points to him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, so all my sin, all my, all my guilt, all my shame is willingly taken by this Lamb. And the first thing the Lamb does is that the at the direction of the Holy Spirit, he walks into my temptation. He walks into the wilderness. So in taking all my sin upon himself, he also, if, if I wanted to divide temptation out from sin, in a way, he doesn't let me. He takes my yeah. temptation on himself, too. So all, every one of those temptations is for me in that way. I was thinking about this, how, I mean, I, I, it should be an obvious sort of thing to us, but that one of the, one of the marks of our fallen humanity is that we are temptable, and that in the resurrection that's gone. We we can't even be tempted to <clears throat> sin anymore. That, that that we're freed even from the our, our sinful desires or even wanting the wrong stuff. That that is one of the reliefs mm -hmm. that the Lord has for us in the resurrection, and that will be glorious. Yeah, and when you look at our chief temptation is to justify ourselves. Um, well, in the resurrection, when we have bodies like the glorified body of Christ Jesus, as Paul speaks of, uh, the, the justification is over. It's done. It's um, fully completed. So for me to try to justify myself is, is something that it wouldn't even make sense, even if I were to want to. Yeah. No, that's right. I, I was thinking about that, uh, This that our chief temptation is, is self-justification, that we are... Mm -hmm. We are made as justifying beings. I mean, God, th this is how we consider a man as justified by faith, and this is what it means to be human. It means, to, it means that we ought to be what God speaks of us, but what we're always trying to do, the fall, is then we want to make ourselves into something. We are what we speak of ourselves, or we are what our neighbor speaks of us, or whatever. So we're yeah. always, we've got this program of trying to, to, to build our own identity from our own words or, or whatever, and that this is, this is what it means to be fallen. Right, and that's one of Luther's beautiful insights, that what it means to be human is to be justified. And, and to the extent I'm not justified, to the extent I walk away from the word of Christ Jesus justifying me, then 
I have robbed myself of true humanity. But if, if if you want now, if he to to lead into something today that yeah, uh, yeah. a little a little different, but when we look around our world, I think we would be as we try to assess our world as Christians and we try to understand what's going on around us, and we look at this secular age that we're in, or this age we might even say of um, materialism in the sense that things are judged uh, materially by what can be what's seen and measured and, and all of that, which means to the extent that that's a true diagnosis of what's going on around us, and certainly for the atheist, um, to the extent that's a true diagnosis, that means then that what is being denied, among other things, but what is being denied is the day of judgment, because that cannot be measured with any of our scientific tools or, or mathematically determined. It is a matter of a day that is not seen right now. And so what secularism does is it releases me from being accountable to that, mm. which may explain things like the marriage of, um, of, of a man and a man. Um, if two guys want to be married, there's not an accounting that they have to worry about. So they might as well do whatever it is they want or the abortion of a child or whatever. There's, so we live in an age which it seems like there's no recognition of a final accounting because it can't be seen or measured. But, but for just a thought, let me, let me give a question that would maybe overthrow that. Okay. And show that we are living in what we are living in times, and every generation does that does know it's accountable and does know there's a day of judgment, whether it admits it or not. And so, for that, are you familiar with the name Walter Williams? Uh, Walter Williams. No. Yes, and I, okay. I do know Walter Williams. I I think I used okay. to. I think I've heard him sub for Rush Limbaugh like ten years ago. Would that be him? Uh, like a, oh, a black economist. I did not know that, but. Yeah, he right. He's a he's um, uh, he, he is an economist. He's at if I remember right, he's at um, um, George Mason University right now. Well, I mean, he's he's over seventy, so I remember him because he would talk about how he's not supposed because he he was uh, he yeah I do I know I can hear his voice in my mind now. Yeah, Walter. Okay, okay perfect. Yeah, he's, he's a brilliant economist. So he mentions a question that he was approached with when he was a freshman student of economics in college. And the question from the professor was, if you're going to die, if people are going to die, then why are people doing things like building the Brooklyn Bridge? And then, of course, we can read in all. In other words, you can build a bridge much cheaper if you're not building it to last for 300 years. You can build a building much cheaper if, if you only want it to last for the next 30 years, which might be how long you expect to live or something like that. So when we look around in our society and we see things that are built to give a permanence to them, the question that the economist would ask is why? Because there's no cost-benefit analysis for that. I could, if I can do it cheaper, then I'm going to have a higher cost-benefit analysis by building it cheaper, and I will right, get out right. of it what I need in my lifetime. Right. So that that was the question, and it was unanswered in the class. The professor didn't have an answer for it, 
And then Walter Williams answered it by comparing it to a funeral and saying that everyone wants to be spoken well of at their funeral. And, you know, there's truth to that then, because if, if you're the engineer, let's say, that designed the Brooklyn Bridge or the architect that designed some beautiful building, uh, your name lives on for the next 200 years. But the same thing in, even in our families. If, if, a, if a mother and father go and build a household and, and uh, purchase, a, purchase a house and accrue the, accrue the wealth for that house, that gives them something that actually ends up after they die going to their great-grandchildren, let's say, who may, who may use it as a benefit for college tuition or something like that. But why if, if you're, if you're going to die? Now, you and I as Christians would have no problem answering that because we know we're not going to die. And we know that we're using gifts from the Lord of life who is eternal and that we ourselves will live forever with him. So for us to build things that accrue to generations after us is just a normal giving of gifts. But if you're a secularist, if you're in an atheist age, the question does come, why would you do that? And so Walter Williams' answer of you want to be spoken well of at your funeral does go, it, it scrapes up against this great truth that everyone knows that there's a judgment day. Everyone knows that there's a, an accounting that goes on even after we have died, which means even an atheist knows that there is life after death. Because if all we were was um, earthworms, let's say, and I get squished today, there really is no person living tomorrow. The earthworm is gone. There's no, there, there's no benefit for that earthworm having a good name. But if we live eternally and there's a, fa a final accounting, then, then we realize our name does live on. So there is something we see in our culture around us that even people who deny the resurrection, who deny the judgment day, who deny any eternal life, in some sense they know it or else they wouldn't build anything hmm. that would last past them. I, Isn't that I wonder, interesting? Uh, yeah, this, this is yeah. There's so many things I want to talk about there. Um, uh, now, so maybe let me ask one clarifying question, and then I want to read you this Gerhard quote that you're gonna, I think, you're gonna love. Um, mm -hmm. But would would Williams be arguing that that even the atheist is admitting that there is a that there is a uh, uh, something real that continues after death, a soul or something immaterial in our humanity that lives on after death? Or would he be able to account it as that there's an accounting for our name or our reputation um, that, that lives on a, after death? Would, how would... I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think William takes, Williams takes it to the full extent um, in his analysis. Although he might personally, you know, in just knowing... Sure, that sure. As a uh, yeah, as a professor of economics, he's accomplishing what he wants with regard with, with regard to the economics by establishing that we want a good re we want to be judged with a good reputation. Uh, now, obviously, that's going to lead to uh, a, a a recognition of some understanding of eternal life and a final accounting. Mm -hmm. But uh, but for him, it was just a question right away of. Why would you build a Brooklyn Bridge to last 300 years if you're only going to live another 30? Right. And for an economist, there's not an there's not a material answer to that. 
Right. Let me, I'm going to throw in this. So yeah. here, this is under the talking about the innate knowledge of God from Johann Gerhardt yeah. and his dogmatics. And and Gerhardt says this. I, I've been I've been looking at this sentence or this this two sentences for the last three weeks, kind of with a stunned awe on my face, working this out. And and I, I mean, you've almost rhymed with what he says. You've spoken so close to it. Gerhardt says, "From principles born within us, there arises in the heart of every one this practical syllogism: quote, He who spins an impious life." shall experience the wrath and punishment of a divine judge." Quote. The reason of this mm -hmm. lies in that which is by nature engraven upon all, that there is a God, that God is to be worshipped, that God is the avenger of crimes, etc. And then the conscience of the guilty adds, I have led a wicked life. So Gerhard is saying that there's this innate knowledge, of, basically, of judgment, that, that it is just sticks to us that there will be an accounting at the end of life for how how we have lived, and and it's it's, it's nearly inescapable. Yes, and that's I mean that would be Paul obviously in Romans chapter two, where the law is written on the hearts also of the unbeliever. But that does explain then as as we're going around, and we're looking at our world, and it's something that should be helpful to us as Christians to understand about our neighbor. While, we're, while we may be thinking our neighbor is living without any law, he's living as a libertine, um, our neighbors who are promoting abortion, who are promoting evolutionism, who are promoting what, whatever else, that they're living apart from this and they have no sense of a judgment. And there's a way we should, in some fashion, in our minds, they'll say, no, they do. They know there's a judgment. They may be living in denial of it. They may be trying to do things that show a denial of it, but they know that there's a judgment or else they wouldn't have a bank account. They would just be living for today. And when they die, they would make sure there's not a single penny left in that account for anyone else to, to benefit from. So our lives betray, our lives betray an innate especially as our lives are, are have any sort of future orientation, our lives betray an innate knowledge of, uh, not necessarily of God at this point, but at least of a judgment. And that sets us to either... And, and that helps explain what we were talking about at the very beginning, that if I know there's a judgment, then I'm going to be, in one way or another, avoiding going to the judgment and also while I'm avoiding standing trying to stand before the judge I'm going to be building always the case that I can if I if I am finally caught and dragged before the judge I'm building the case that I can make for myself how I can account for my own actions is that is that about it yes yes which which That's is amazing. why when someone is doing something um something immoral in our society if if they're let's say promoting the marriage or the, the unnatural sex of, of um, men and men or something like that, they, the one thing they don't allow is to be judged for it. So then instead they judge the one who is bringing the question and say, you are a hater. You are not of love. Well, that's the whole judgment against them because love is kind. Love is receiving these gifts from the Lord. Love then is a man and a woman taking each other as one flesh. Love is building families. Love is treating neighbor kindly. A man and a man 
enjoying each other unnaturally is not love. But they're not going to be able to listen to that word of judgment, so they flip the word over and say that by you bringing it up, that unnatural sex is not right. By you bringing it up, you are the one not of love. In other words, you're a hater. But that right there shows that they that they know that they are under the pressure of the accusation. And, and that's what is helpful, I think, for us to realize as Christians. Everyone around us, whether they know it, whether they consciously think it through, whether they've brought themselves into some level of denial, but everyone around us is under the pressure of the accusation of the law. Now, we know that the law always accuses and we want it to always accuse, as long as we're in our sinful flesh, as long as we're living as old Adam and new Adam at the same time, I need my old Adam accused uh, in order to know the gift of repentance. But I can also know that this pressure of the accusation is a blanket over all my neighbors, even though they may not recognize it. This is fantastic. The, the unbeliever is more theological than they even know. We're going to see then what, if we stand under the accusation of the law, then what does the Lord have to say about it? We've got to do that after the break. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Uh, this is Pastor Warren Graff as my guest here on Cross Defense. Let's go to the break again. Ian, that was a quick break. Let's see if we can do it as quickly this time. We'll be right back to talk about more. The accusation of the law in the conscience of man. The, the unknown testimony that we are humans who are justified or justifying ourselves. Stay tuned. You're listening to Cross Defense. This is the day which the Lord has made. For the lonely and homebound, for the grieving and dying, and for all those who are afflicted in body, mind, and spirit, especially for me. Join us for a live broadcast of Chapel at the LCMS International Center weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. I'm Pastor Ken Bomberger. Join me weekday mornings at 7.15 for Orazio, your time of scripture, meditation, and music on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Thank you for being cross-defense listeners. I really appreciate your attention. I want to, this is the, really the last week for this uh, announcement, so thanks for your attention on this. But we're going to Spain this summer. We're going to go study the Book of Romans, visit the missionaries there, see the country of Spain. we got about six spots open, and those spots will close this week. So if you'd like to join us in Spain the summer of 2019, then please uh, let me know. You can find out more at our website, wolfmuller.co slash Spain 2019, or just go to the website. You can see it under the travel button. We'd love to have you join us this year. Thanks. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and I'm talking with Pastor Warren Graff of Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Pastor Graff has brought to us this conversation from Walter Williams, which is which has 
uh, what underlined the fact that we might think of ourselves, we, we might think of our pagan, our unbelieving neighbors as so secular that they don't believe in a judgment, like some sort of Epicurean delusion that to die is to die, but that we, even the fact that we are thinking ahead on how to make things last is, an, is a betrayal of the fact of that we really do believe in a, in, in a, in a life after death and in as more, more specifically in a judgment after death. Uh, I got a couple of Pastor Graf, I got a, did I get that right as by way of summary? Yes. I did I so. did I I want got a couple of questions to press us a little further, but did uh, but before I do I want to just make sure it's okay to leave Walter Williams. Did you have did you have anything else from him or a quote or something that you wanted to No, no. That's that's good. I just wanted to bring that up to uh, as a reflection on our culture around us and, and where we build for permanence and what that shows us about our neighbor. What about, so uh, there's a handful, uh, which way to go here? What about this? Okay. There, it, it seems to be that um, the idea of the judgment or specifically the idea of the end of the world is a almost inescapable theme in any sort of narrative art. So, so movies or stories or anything like this. And it seems like every, every story that we get has an end of the world and that and that that comes into our politics as well especially when it comes to ecology so that mm -hmm. the for example the green new deal or the environmentalist movement or the whole discussion of of uh, climate change we we were I, I i was looking up this morning someone sent me a question about climate justice and we we're looking up this this kind of whole realm of thought that there that's a really apocalyptic sort of idea so that the judgment so so tell, I just want to know if there's a parallel here instead of understanding from the Christian point of view that the world will continue until God decides to send his son who will judge the living and the dead the the secular mind has a has a way that there's a judgment but it's it's our own it's our own doing there's an end of the world but it's our own doing it's the consumption of fossil fuels or whatever and that becomes the the story of the end of the world Yes, but I think it's actually worse than that because in in secular thought, it would not be just our own our own doing, but there is this idea of what Karl Marx called the uh, the arc of history, and we'll, we even hear that in some of our own political speeches, probably not by people who know that they get this historicism from Karl Marx or from thinkers like that. I mean, it's also in Plato and, and such as that. But what what this historicism does, or this arc of history does, is it says that there is something that is overruling and controlling, and we are in its control, so that history is arcing in a certain way. And, and for instance, um, Camille Paglia, uh, you know, a cultural observer, she talks about the uh, hegemony of evolutionism, which is the same thought, essentially, where when you believe in evolutionism, it's like everything is under its control, and it's just taking things up into its use. So even when someone is denying a personal God, a creator, a, a loving voice that says, you know, let there be man and woman and such, even when they're denying that and they take everything down to a base materialism, they still end up with this idea of an arc of history or a historicism or a hegemony of evolutionism, whatever phrase they use to cover it, that means that there is an accounting of, of what we are under control of 
which means that when you're mistreating the earth, you and I would say we should not mistreat the gifts of the earth. We should take care of water. We should take care of our backyard and, and things such as that. But it's because we are creatures of a loving creator, and he has given us um, dominion over this. And so we love this gift. But they would say that we should take care of this earth with a much more materialistic way. But there is an accounting still, which is why what there's a, you know, the congresswoman who says that if we don't start doing things right, and, and she had her, her green program to do it right, then the earth is going to shut down in 12 years. Well, that's an accounting to this overall hegemony of, of the, the, um, the ecology or whatever we want to call it. So, so, so see if I could uh, keep it up with you here. So instead of seeing – the way I was thinking about it was we all have this innate sense of judgment. We Christians confess from the Scriptures that this judgment is a judgment of God at the end of the world, that, that if you don't have that, you're going to come up with a replacement judgment. But what you're saying is that mm -hmm. there's a whole picture of the world that's going to answer all these fundamental questions. It's going to absorb all of these things. So when we come up to – when we come up to us uh, 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 this sort of system of thought or worldview or even uh, um, I, the, the, something like that, it's going to answer all these questions. So what is right and wrong? How am I supposed to live? What is a good life? What's the end of the world look like? And so evolution is going to, just by the nature of, a, of, of what the idea is, it's going to absorb all of those. It's going to answer all of those questions in a particular way and take us into an entire system of thought. Am I, am I tracking yes. with you there? Yes, which means then that I can make you feel guilty in that, in that way of thinking. I can make you feel guilty because instead of using plastic grocery bags, um, you use paper. And then once you feel guilty enough that you're now using plastic, then I'm going to make you feel guilty because instead of using plastic, you should have been using um, some recyclable um, piece of cloth or something like that. But, but you will always be under this pressure of the accusation because we are accountable to this arc of history. Now, is there a way that this is um, a displaced guilt so that we have, a, we have a right and wrong according to the Ten Commandments, according to Moses? Uh, mm -hmm. So the, here, here's, what, here's what's good and here's what's bad, that you serve your neighbor and his life and his marriage and his, and his property and his name, and, and here's your God that you worship and hear his word, and yet... So we're guilty according to God's standard, but we we can't stand that guilt. So we're gonna we're gonna come up with a whole different standard of guilt. So now you're guilty because of having too big of a carbon footprint, or you're guilty because you you haven't signed on to the sexual revolution and the and the ideology of tolerance or or whatever. So mm -hmm. that you have a displaced guilt. It, and doesn't that show a great danger even for us as Christians? You and I already have enough guilt, and I'm speaking here, of course, before the gospel, before the justification, but in our sinful flesh, you and I already have enough guilt according to the, ho the holy law of God. I don't need any more guilt. The guilt I have is, in a, is my guilt of actually attacking the God who gives me gifts. So one of the dangers we have as Christians is to not only know that we're guilty because of the holy law of God, but to actually add other guilt on. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's what the Pharisees were good at.
people were already guilty because they, for instance, did not say keep the Sabbath day holy, even in their heart by not receiving the gospel in faith. But this, but the Pharisees then go and add on man-made guilt of you're guilty of breaking the Sabbath law if you walk too many steps on a Sabbath, or mm. or other what if you pick a head of um, of wheat mm. on the Sabbath. Now, so, do you, yeah, do you we, think we that there's always a, be adding guilt? Do you think mm-hmm. that there's a way of transferring guilt though, or an attempt to transfer guilt? So let's like so let's say that I'm. I'm a uh, I'm a supporter of abortion, and I, and so I. But I I know I can't escape the fact that that's wrong, and horrible. But I but now I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna try to hedge against that guilt by driving an electric car or something like this. So I'm gonna try to manage yes. my guilt in that way. Isn't that what Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees of when? The Pharisees are going around making sure that everyone keeps these little laws and regulations. In that way, in our modern day, they would have to drive an electric car and use the right kind of bags. But Jesus says, yes, but look inside of you. You're nothing but a whitewashed tomb. Hmm. Your, your guilt is much worse. So we will always be under this temptation to, as you say, displace. But I, I'm going to cover up my whitewashed tomb by making sure that I'm I'm guilty of outward things that I can try to get a handle on. Hmm. If my hmm. guilt is I'm using the wrong kind of bags at the grocery store, I can deal with that. I can find a way to conquer that kind of guilt. But if my hmm. guilt is that I have not loved my neighbor as myself in my heart, all of a sudden I can't justify myself. That and that's it. So if we if we're if our whole program is built on self justification. Uh, it can't stand up against the preaching of God's law. I mean, that the the purpose of God's law is the chief purpose is to destroy that that edifice of our own self righteousness, that that idol mm-hmm. of our own of our own self. Now, but so now we got to get to this a very important point, which is to say, okay, so let's just let's just go there. Let's just say, here's our our secular neighbor, our unbelieving friend. Our, our our pagan family member and our own I, I mean our own hearts that are just given over to idolatry so then what what's the answer i mean you can see this instinctive wanting to avoid the idea of judgment you can you can understand that there's a great sympathy there because what happens if i'm guilty you know what happens if on on, on the day that i die i stand before the judge and it and it turns out that 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 I, that that my own wretchedness and my own and my own filth and my own um, depravity comes comes to light. I mean, that's a that's a horrible sort of picture. So, what's the alternative? Mm-hmm. That, uh, yeah, I think that that's where, as Christians, we should be looking then of while we're looking around our, at our neighbor and we're thinking they don't feel the pressure of the law. There's there's some manner that we should be saying, no, they do feel the pressure of the law. They feel it wrongly. They've misplaced it but they know the accusation of the law or else they would not be looking forward to a day of judgment. And we know they're looking forward to a day of judgment because they're building things of permanence that will, that will surpass their lifespan so that they know that they're, they don't want their name to die. They want it to continue, which is good, but that means our task then, and, and this is what the great difficulty perhaps, but our task is, not to put them under an accusation as if they don't know one. They do. 
but rather to let them know the true accusation that all of us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are guilty at the heavenly throne according to our sinful nature. None of us get out of our sinful flesh until we die. And yet at the same time, there's a Lord who speaks the word of justification and creates this heart of faith, this new man, the new Adam that Paul speaks of, so that we are at the same time having the joy of living as the new man, even while we're daily putting to death the old Adam in repentance. That's the gift we want them to have. That's fantastic. So the, the alternative to justifying ourselves, which is a failed attempt, is the words, the Lord's justifying word, which says that well, all the righteousness of Christ belongs to us. All the all the keeping of the law of Jesus, the perfection of the Son of God, belongs to us by faith. This is this is, really, this is great, Pastor Graf. That I, we, the clock is we're out. I can't believe it. We got like a minute left. Any just thirty seconds, maybe final thoughts on this topic. Our judgment day. Our judgment day has come, huh? Well, just um, real quickly, let me read a couple verses from Paul. Um, that what where Paul writes in First um, Thessalonians. But if but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we have faith that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. That is our comfort for the day of this judgment. That's fantastic. The judgment day is the day of Christ. For us who are in Christ, it's a day of joy, a day of light, a day of 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 the Lord's kindness and mercy. It's in fact the judgment day is our great hope because our sins are not held against us. Our sins are forgiven. They were atoned for by the death of Jesus, all of them. So we can lay down all attempts. We must lay down all attempts at self-justification, knowing that Jesus is our Savior, our Redeemer, and our Justifier. Thanks for listening to Cross Defects. Tune in next week, and we'll do this again. Rejoicing in the Lord's Word, the clarity and kindness of God and Christ for us. Take care. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. Thanks for downloading this episode of, of Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian. Wait a minute. Let's try that again. Podcast Cold Close. Thanks for being a Cross Defense podcast listener. I really enjoyed it. And if there was something that stuck out to you in this episode, I'd love it if you if you share it with your friend. If you have feedback or questions, uh, please feel free to send that to me as well. You can find out the best way to get a hold of me at the website, wolfmuller.co, wolfmuller.co. Thanks. We'll talk to you again next week.